doesn't appear to be frozen right now. I don't know. Okay. Um, you text. There's nobody watching. It just it says on live, uh, but there's nobody viewing at this point. That's not, that's the first one. Oh my gosh. Is this the one that's, I don't know which one this one is. So this is working, but not everybody, not everybody is on that one. There are five people watching. Okay, I have an excuse. I have a hole in my head. Things fall out, so bear with me. We'll get this working and we'll have class. Um... I don't know what I don't know what link to use here. Julie's trying to figure it out to to get it out to the rest of the world and eat and email the uh, the URL to this so that they can get the rest of the class can get to it. I'm going to give a few minutes to, to for people to show up. Um, I got a couple of announcement things that I want to talk about. And I just want to mention. Um, did you figure it out? <laughs> okay, if you hear about Julie and I killing each other tonight, it's because Facebook is frustrating. Uh, anyway, all right, turn over to the well. Before you turn over, anyway, let me. I just want to read a couple of uh, things, just to update. Um, announcements here. First off, I don't know if you were able to go to church on the morning services. Uh, we had a fairly good turnout at the nine o'clock service, not such a big turnout on the 1030 service. Um, but, uh, I think things went well from what I could understand. There was probably 30 to 35 people in the first service and, um, about half of that in the second service, but I think everything went well. Uh, one of the things that we need to note is uh, people need, we're not requiring them to wear masks, but Brian says that the pastors probably need to wear masks because people want to speak to the pastors and they want to get closer than six feet, so pastors will probably start wearing masks. Um, we didn't use the overflow. It wasn't necessary to use the overflow. Uh, overall, though, everything was encouraging and went well. We did have some electronic problems with the sound system itself. So this has been an attacking day. Um, Facebook has been down. The power amps for the main house speakers went down. 
The network is going down. Everything is in trouble. So just be in prayer for all of that. Um, and uh, see, I think that's everything. I do know that Brian is going to try to have a next steps meeting for anybody that is um, uh, that knows anybody that wants to, to join in on the next steps. And then also, uh, if you're, I sent an email out. I got. Uh, I don't know who all is discipling. I know that the Arnies are discipling uh, a couple. And they're wrapping that up. But if you are discipling, if you could send me an email and give me your status. Uh, are you meeting, number one? Number two, how are you meeting? Are you doing uh, face-to-face? Are you doing uh, uh, some sort of virtual meeting? Or are you not doing anything at all right now, which is fine? Uh, what lesson are you on? And so on. If you could give me that information, I'd appreciate it. And... Um, and then, of course, the How to Disciple class is starting up here pretty soon. And so Brian is, um, there's a website, the church's website, at the top, on the right-hand side, the very top, is a link uh, to link to that, to How to Disciple. So if you know somebody that wants to take the How to Disciple class, or if you want to take the How to Disciple class, you can register at that link and uh, get that done. And then if anybody wants to be discipled, if you know anybody that wants to be discipled, you can send them to the church. And there's a link on the top of the homepage, uh, request for being discipled. I'm not sure exactly what the wording, but it should be pretty obvious there. So we have those th- those things. Um, the handout that I, I did email that to everybody, but you can also download that out of the files location in the real life class. But just a couple of quick things. Uh, the Hall's cleaning team is the 21st of June. The Yoder's cleaning team is the 27th, 25th of July. I don't know what Jim Boyette is going to want the teams to do, so that's kind of in flux. So check with Jim Boyette what he wants want you guys to do. Men's Bibles and Breakfast is June 20th, 8 o'clock. As far as I can tell, that's still on. And the Ladies Invest Study on May 11th, which is this coming week, is also on at 6.30. And um, and then there's, uh, as I said, next steps, meeting, baptisms, um, anything like that that needs to be done. Um, people can get that taken care of. And so um, so those are some of the announcements that we have for the class. Uh, if anybody has any, any prayer requests, you could text that to Julie, 816-808-8155, and we'll get that out for prayer this, this evening. And um, um, if you turn over to the book of Mark, chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 16. We'll read down through verse, um, um, probably verse 30. Uh, and then, then I'll pray. Uh, then I'll give you a minute or two to pray. And then I'll wrap up our prayer time and get into, involved in the lesson. So let's start with Mark, chapter 1. We'll read verse 16 down to verse 30. It says, Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants who went after him. Verse 21, And they went into Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, or they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority, and not as the scribes. I think that's an amazing statement right there, that the uh, he taught it with authority, but the uh, um, the rest of them, uh, the scribes, they didn't have authority to teach. Um, they were just uh, note takers. Anyway, verse 23, And there was there, and there, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. So it was one of the first declarations of Jesus Christ being, being deity is that the demons that were possessing this man knew who he was. Anyway, um, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when this unclean spirit had torn him 
and cry with a loud voice, he came out of him. They were all amazed, and so much that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commanded he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region around about Galilee. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, there entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they they tell him of her. So let's pray. Any, Any prayer requests? Okay. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this passage of scripture, Lord, as we, as we read it, as we see about becoming fishers of men, which is exactly, uh, what we're really, uh, studying about in the book of Philippians, Lord, is being a fisher of men is somebody who share the, who shares the gospel, who puts the word out, who, uh, furthers the gospel as we're learning about. So we pray, Father, for each one of us that we would become the kind of person you wanted us to be. We ask, Father, for your help in guiding us and directing us. We help, ask for your help uh, to help us to, to surrender to you and do the things that you want us to do. And we'll just praise you and thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Father in heaven, as we conclude in prayer, we're just so thankful and, and blessed to be uh, part of your your plan for uh, reaching the world and how you trust us uh, to do the things that need to be done. And uh, Father, as we read the rest of this passage, if we're thinking through it, and we've noted, Lord, about authority and about being able to uh, work under your authority, but work with your authority as well. Father, we pray that you would guide us and direct us and that we would always be surrendered to your will. We just ask now for your blessing on the night as we study out the, the concluding verses of Philippians chapter 1. We give you the honor and the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, Philippians chapter 1, uh, we're going to be in uh, verse 20 through verse 30 tonight. Um, but there's so much, as always, with Paul's teaching. There's just so much that is contained in this in each verse and sometimes it's just a word or a phrase um, but sometimes I want to go back and pick that part of it up again and review that so we'll be doing that uh, but let me get to uh, we'll read we'll start in chapter 1 um, in verse 20 and we'll read down to the end of the chapter and then we'll then we'll see what um, what God has for us starting in verse 20. Is according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I wot not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given to the, uh, in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. Now this is an interesting passage, but this is kind of remind us where we're at, where we've been. The theme of our study um, which I, I think, you know, I like to kind of review this as often as possible because it kind of keeps us focused on what it is that we're studying because we can study a lot of things out of, out of a passage of, of Scripture like this. But most teaching of this letter, you, as I've said before, is focused on joy and rejoicing 
because those words are used a lot in this text. And that's a theme that many people do teach with. And while it's a good theme, I think, based on what I've seen, based on just just looking at the words that Paul wrote, uh, there's more about motivating and encouraging the body of believers to engage in the promotion of the message of the gospel. Promoting the gospel. Get the gospel out. What do we need to do as a church, as a believer, to get the gospel out? And so this letter is about encouragement, which is your first blank. It's about encouragement to engage in actions that are that further the gospel. Because Paul uses that expression um, uh, about furthering the gospel. So this is our theme for study, which is the title of, of this study, the whole overall study, to further the gospel. So it was Paul's lifelong desire to encourage this church, the church at Philippi, to continue what he had witnessed them doing already. And I think it's interesting. He didn't have to teach them how to further the gospel. He didn't have to, uh, he didn't have to give them an evangelism class. They basically had a passion in their heart to share what God had done in their life and give that to somebody else so that God could do it in their life. They had, they had a passion to further the gospel. So it was Paul's lifelong desire. And it ought to be every Christian's lifelong desire and intent to live for the furtherance of the gospel. Um, and so um, this letter is an encouragement to this church, but it should be an church, encouragement to our church as well, at Heartland Baptist Fellowship, to continue what he had witnessed in them for doing to further the gospel. What are we doing to further the gospel? What should we be doing to make sure that we get the gospel out? So this letter should be an encouragement to us as well because we should be a mirror of the believers at Philippi. So what the believers are doing there, what they look like there, we don't want to look like the Corinthians. We don't want to look like the Galatians. uh, But we should want to look like the Philippians because they were doing what, what they needed to be doing. So Paul writes this letter to encourage all the saints to stay the course and to continue to remain focused on the gospel and to be directed by the gospel. So this church is a is a model church, and it had little error. I mean, every church has its issues. Even HBF has a little bit of issues. Their little issue uh, in Philippi was that there was a little bit of <coughs> of a problem of unity, um, and he addresses that in several different places, in particular uh, in the passage that we're we're studying tonight, and so. Um, we know that many of the churches that Paul wrote to had both sin and sanctification problems. Philippi, though, had nothing like those churches. They also did not find themselves suffering. They were not being under persecution either, which is a because of the location that they were in, uh, they were not under persecution. And so Philippi had nothing like those churches um, that were going on. And he, Paul describes their conversation, that word conversation meaning their behavior, at the end of chapter 1, verse 27, we'll talk about that in a minute. So in the outline, because I find it's interesting the way the outline of the of these books work out. There's a there's a theme of the whole book, but then in each of the four chapters, there ultimately is what I call tools or key verses that if we imply or employ the tools from each chapter, we'll do what God wants us to do in furthering the gospel. Last week... Uh, I described these four verses as a tool that we should that we should use to strengthen our labor in the gospel. Uh, so we all need tools to minister, which gives us a guide to how we need uh, to what we need for our preparation to further chapter one, where we're studying today, is about the confidence, which is the blank, the confidence in Christ that we can further the gospel. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter one, verse six. If you back all the way up to verse six. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Being confident of this very thing, that what the work that has been begun in you, well, what work was is that? Well, it's the gospel. The gospel is working in you. Uh, you received the gospel. You heard the gospel message. You heard about Jesus Christ. You received it. You believed it. And that's began to work in you. So what will it take in your life to have confidence in Christ? Too many of us don't have the confidence in Christ that we claim that we have. So how much 
what do we have to do to have the confidence to be able to further the message of, of the gospel? And what prevents us, this is on the flip side of things, what prevents us having a strong confidence in the work of Christ in our life? You know, every t- every one of us have some, something going on in our life that uh, takes away our confidence in the gospel, the gospel message. And we know the gospel message is not just death, bell, and resurrection. The gospel message includes everything that's in the Bible. It's the good news. It's God's news. It's it's God's spiel. Uh, and he's teaching us some things. And so there's um, having confidence in the work that Christ began in you and will perform till his return. That ought to be a motivation. You should do what you know you need to do further in the gospel and have confidence that you can do that because Christ is working through you. And there's four tools, and there's four chapters. Confidence in Christ, chapter 1. The mind of Christ, chapter 2. The ensample of Christ in chapter 3. And all of our work is kept by Christ in unity in chapter 4. So these tools help us fulfill the theme of our study, which we've already talked about. That's in Romans, not Romans, but in in chapter 1, verse 12. Let's just... Flip back for that. We read verse 6, and let's read verse 12. But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So whatever happened to Paul, whatever happened to the believers at this church, happened to the furtherance of the gospel. And that's uh, that's what's going on um, in this chapter as we're, as we're breaking it down. So let me review the chapter real quick, verses 3 to 5. Uh, Paul described the fellowship that motivates a church body. So he's talking about fellowship there. Uh, we need to have fellowship. One of the reasons that we wanted to meet as a church again today in the building as much as possible, given the constraints that we had, was to reestablish fellowship in the body. And I know we can't do that looking in Facebook here with this video. It's the best we can do for our Sunday school class. Uh, maybe what we need to do is have another night where we get all on Zoom and we just have a time of fellowship and prayer, like we did a couple of weeks ago, which was very encouraging to me, and I think to everybody else as well. And then we, in verses 6 to 8, Paul speaks of his confidence in an unstoppable work, and the need for the believer to be in defense of the gospel and the confirmation of the gospel. So, defending the gospel, and I know people say, oh, you don't need to defend the gospel, it's self, it's, it can defend itself. Yes, but you need to be able to answer, Paul Peter says, to give an answer to every person that asks the hope that lies within you. And so uh, so he talks about that in verses 6 to 8. And in verses 9 to 11, Paul expressed his love for the church by how he prayed for the saints. And he gave a, a, a running list. This is essentially Paul's prayer list for the saints at the church, which is, you're a saint. That's the prayers that Paul would pray for you. That's the prayers that you and I ought to pray for each other. And then in verses 12 to 20, which we looked at yesterday or last week, Paul encouraged the saints to be motivated in the preaching of the gospel and how uh, knowing the gospel and speaking the gospel is motivating to us. Today we're going to finish up chapter 20, chapter 1, verses 20 to 30, but talking about the mag- magnifying Christ in the center of our work to further the gospel. So let's 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 go ahead and look at this. In chapter 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, uh, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. So this is, the first part of this verse is Paul's attitude was one of being sold out uh, for Christ. He was sold out. It didn't matter what was going on in Paul's life. That was, Christ was the center. Now, Paul did not seek to be freed. And we talked about that last week, uh, that uh, there were men uh, who were preaching Christ, some of contention, uh, some uh, of envy and strife, some of support of everything. And that didn't bother Paul. Because what was happening was the gospel was being preached. Jesus' name was being proclaimed. It didn't matter who by who or what their motivation was. He didn't care about that. And so he didn't try to seek to be freed either. Uh, it was instead what he wanted was to be able to honor the gospel by the life, by his life or by his death. And so to Paul, as far as Paul was concerned, 
His life was a secondary consideration, while Christ was the primary. You don't see that very often in the world today. Uh, not in not in a first world country anyway. You don't see where the uh, a believer's consideration is Christ over them. Most Christians want to elevate themselves, lift themselves up, be be profited in some way. Uh, maybe the maybe the word of God would benefit them in a way that has nothing to do with lifting up Christ. So to Paul, it was, his secondary consideration was his life. His first consideration was Christ. He stood upon three compelling principles in his life. And these principles are valuable for us, too. This is how we should live. Number one, his first um, compelling principle was to advocate the gospel. Now, that's not a, there's, not, there's not a place on the notes. I probably should have put this on here, but you might want to just jot this down. Paul's compelling principle in his life was to advocate the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? To advocate, to announce it, to push it, to promote it, to uh, further it, to advocate, to this is the thing that's important to Paul. And number two, number two was, compelling principle number two was to maintain the truth of the gospel. One of the things that Paul did not want to have happen was that the word of God, which is the entirety of the gospel, not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but the word of God would not be falsified. Paul couldn't, he wouldn't put up with falsification of the word of God. And number three, his third compelling principle was to exhibit his spirit, to exhibit the spirit of Christ in Paul and in other believers. So his life, remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 11? Just be followers of me as I follow Christ. That's what he's talking about here. Be a follower of Christ. Exhibit his spirit. Paul was never ashamed of these of his actions, but he was always bold in them. And we talked about his boldness last week. He never did anything to bring shame upon the name of Jesus Christ. Or his testimony, uh, his own testimony, everything he did was, Paul's testimony was precious to him. Your testimony should be precious to you. Some people don't think about it that way, but your, your your testimony ought to be precious. You should want to protect it. So when people look at you and you say, I'm a Christian, they say, well, if you're a Christian, why did you do that? Why did you do these things? That's what happens a lot of times because people are not protective of their testimony. Um, so he was never ashamed of his actions. He was always bold in him. He never did anything to bring... Shame upon Christ for his testimony. <clears throat> so Paul's commitment is sustained by the supply of the Spirit, which that's mentioned in verse 19. Go back to verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. There is a supply of Christ that's been flowing to Paul that you have access to. Just imagine for just a minute that you're at Quick Trip and you got the gas hose connected to your car and then you get in your car and you drive away and the gas hose stays connected and just keeps stretching and never breaks. You have a supply of the gas in the gas tank at the gas station continually feeding your car. That's the supply of Christ. That's what he's talking about in verse 19. The supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ never ends unless we turn the tap off ourselves. So Paul's commitment is sustained by that supply of the Spirit. And uh, we'll come back to that uh, in a minute because I want to point out something else there. But then he also goes on in verse 20, in the middle part of verse 20, says that in nothing, um, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with, um, let me back up in a minute. He talks about his earnest expectation and his hope. So Paul's earnest expectation and hope. Another way to express having earnest expectation. What what does that mean, earnest expectation? You could say it like this, an eager outlook, which is in a blank for you. He has, a, he has an eager outlook. Um, Paul used the same phrase in Romans chapter 8. You flip over to Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and 19. When speaking of the glory which shall be revealed in us, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory 
which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature, the earnest expectation of the creature, the eager look outlook of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. The, the creation has an earnest expectation of man doing right things. Okay, um, so what Paul means here in verse 20 is that there's no other desire he had but that Christ be magnified by the actions of his life. This earnest expectation, this eager outlook is that Paul wanted to see Christ magnified by his actions. The things that Paul did, the things that you and I should do, should magnify Christ. To magnify, you, I think everybody's familiar with the word magnify, magnify right? Get the little magnifying glasses out, you know, and you, you make things uh, look bigger. I, I was working on Julie's um, reading glasses the other day, and I needed a mirror magnifying glass to look at that screw that's down in the, you know, in the hinge. I had to have something to magnify the screw to get it out. So to magnify simply means to make enlarged, to, in, to enlarge it. So we want to magnify Christ. We need to enlarge Christ's vision, Christ's image, Christ's in, uh, his, his touch on what's going on in the world. And so um, Paul was sold out to, his, to this expectation. And his hope, and he also speaks about his hope, was enlarged to keep him from doing anything that drew shame. So he goes on and he says in verse 9, uh, verse Verse 20, my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. He didn't want to be ashamed of anything that he would do that could cause tarnish, uh, an image of tarnishment. You know, think about tarnish. You think about something like brass or silver where it's dulled out. You know, um, he didn't want that to happen. So um, his earnest expectation kept him focused while his hope kept him blameless. What a what a what an awesome kind of way to think about that. His his eager outlook kept him focused on what he was looking for and his hope about not bringing shame to the gospel uh, kept him blameless. Two things that every Christian should do be to be focused and to be blameless. So we'll go back to verse 19 again. Paul knew that the preaching of the word or the preaching of the Lord would turn to his salvation. Notice it says, for I know that, in verse 19, that that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ. So Paul knew that the preaching of the Lord would turn to his salvation. So um, he fully expected that the words of the Lord would have a greatest impact on his circumstances, even more than the preaching of his enemies would have on his circumstances. His present circumstances included, well, what was his circumstances at the time that he's in Rome? Well, he was chained up to a Roman soldier all the time. He had lost all of his privacy, even though he was under house arrest, and he had a house that he could live in. Um, he was, um, the, pres- the pretentiousness of envious preaching was constantly uh, being thrown in his face. People that were preaching of envy and strife. Uh, that was going on. His whole existence was in bondage, but that didn't bother him. He knew that he was moving towards his deliverance and towards the proclamation of the gospel. And this is the reason why he could write in Romans 8.28 again, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. So those who love God and follow after the call of God are able to be confident that in all trouble it shall turn out to your salvation. And Paul's boldness grew, grew his expectation and his hope would not allow him to trample the image of Christ in, in life or death. So, but what does it mean, the word salvation? What, is, what does he mean? I, mean? I think of what a lot of us do is we see the word salvation and we immediately attack, attach, I don't know what to say, we, we attach the concept of being saved, right? The, the saved by grace, like, I can't remember now where it's at, but it says, work out your own salvation. Oh, well, that means that you get to work for your salvation. No, that doesn't. that's not what that means. But what is Paul talking about here in the word salvation? The word can mean deliverance. It can mean well-being. 
It can mean escape, or literally it could mean his salvation. So there's a lot of ways that he could have used it, but it's possible that Paul simply means that his present trouble will be vindicated upon seeing Christ fully glorified. What he's suffering with right now isn't such that big of a deal, but he will be saved from that is most likely what he's talking about. So if we have that same expectation and hope, we too should glory in the magnification of of Christ as well. So it seems to me that Paul knows that his current status is temporary. I mean, think about that. His current status, he, he fully believed that his status was temporary. How many of you believe your status is temporary? The situation that you're suffering in right now is a temporary circumstance. That's where Paul was at. That's what I think is, is he's talking about anyway. I believe that he believed that he will be delivered from the court, from the prison, and from the life that he's in, and he will be delivered into heaven. He knows that he's going to heaven. So the rest is, doesn't bother him. So Paul's assurance of this is because he knows that God delivers the righteous. Think about what Paul or what what God did with Job. Remember Job? Job has said that he's a righteous man, but he suffered greatly, yet God did deliver him. And I think Paul's thinking that maybe his life is a little bit like Job for a while right now. So throughout the Old Testament, we read of God delivering, we read of God protecting, we read of God saving the righteous, and we can rest in knowing that God will deliver us from our suffering as well. One of the things that motivates me, and I don't want to speak about myself too much here, but I will say this, my circumstances are bleak and, uh, and it's painful and it, and it can, be, can be pretty overwhelming. But I also know that I will be delivered from this and I believe that I will be delivered into heaven and I will be delivered into the presence of my king and I don't worry about anything else because I know that that's true. No matter what happens to me, that's a true statement and I can rest in that. So uh, Paul was confident that he would endure to the end and finally be delivered, which is another way to to say, or another way to translate the word salvation back in verse 19. He was confident in the words of the Lord. Are you confident in the words of the Lord? He knew the word would come to pass. Do you believe that the word is, the promises of the word will be fulfilled? He believed in the sovereignty of God over all matters. Do you believe that God is in charge of everything? I know we like to say that, but how many of us really believe that and live that? Uh, one of the greatest truths is that God works his purposes through the prayers of the saints. And he, Paul, confident was confident in the eternal purposes of God, and he understood that God affected his work and brought his purposes to pass in concert with the prayers of the saints. So let me say that again. Paul was confident in the purpose of God, and he understood that God affected his work, God's work that was being done. He he did those that he did that work, um, and brought his purposes to pass. The intention that God had, His will, in concert with your prayers. So we don't change God's mind by praying, but when we pray, God works His work. It kind of matches up our prayers, which gives us a confidence in God because God answers our prayer. But it was God who orchestrated it all to begin with. That's how, that's God. That's a cool thing. Paul was confident in the prayers of the saints too because through the prayers of others, he, he we were strengthened and delivered. And we know that God works his purposes through our prayers. That's what we're talking about in verse 19. Okay, so go verse 21 now. We'll go on past uh, there. It's one of the greatest verses, I think, personally in the Bible. I love this verse. It's such an awesome verse. For to me is to live for to me is for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What a powerful statement that is. The power of victory over every on every side is in this verse. And I do believe this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. This statement declares the purpose of the believer getting to the heart of Christianity. This verse declares the purpose of the believer getting to the heart of Christianity. So listen to this. There's two things here. There's two sides to this. First, to live as Christ 
There is no other life for the believer. To live is Christ. There is no other life for the believer. To die is gain. There is no other end for the believer. To die is gain. There is no other there is no other end for the believer. So two things. There's no other life for the believer, and there's no other end for the believer. This is where the believer should live in this dynamic. So Paul is declaring a singular truth that all of our lives must bear out in testimony. And what he's saying is that Christ is the reason for his being, and he's totally wrapped up in him as the reason for his existence. What he means, what he means is that he is occupied with Christ. He trusts Christ. He loves Christ. He hopes in him. He obeys him. He preaches him. He follows after him on and on and on. To live is Christ. Everything that Paul does in his living is about Christ. So if we live, we see Christ's impact on the world. Now think about this. If we live, we see the impact of Christ on the world. But you know what we see if we die? We gain the ability to see the impact of Christ on the world, but from heaven. So in either case, living or dying, we see the impact of Christ. One, from the perspective of being on the ground. The other, the perspective of being in heaven and and being able to see what Christ is doing. Wouldn't it be nice to have the ver the the um, the uh, what's, how do I want to say it? Um, being able to have the vision like God sees the way God sees the world that you are in heaven, you can see that the same way. That's that's just got to be a cool thing, I think. So if we live, we see Christ's impact on the world. If we die, we see Christ's impact on the world. Now I want to say something about. Uh, a false teaching that sometimes creeps into this location right here. And it's, it's what's called soul sleep. Soul sleep is not found in this passage. In fact, soul sleep is not found in the Bible. Soul sleep is the idea that either the body or the soul uh, wait in the grave until the resurrection of the body and the soul, and then they get taken off. So we know that that's not a true, that that's not true. Um, there's no intermediary destination for the believer. The Catholic Church teaches purgatory. Um, we, you know, there's other denominations that teach a similar type of thing. Uh, the Jehovah Witnesses: once you're in the grave, you're in the grave. Um, and there's other things, other denominations like that. Those are not taught in the Bible. So, soul sleep is is, is there is no intermediary dis- destination for the believer that departs this earth. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. God has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The moment you die, your body dies. Your being is transferred to heaven and you're seated seated with Christ in heavenly places. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Jesus said unto him, talking to the thief on the cross, Verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul writes, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So you die, you're immediately taken to heaven, you're immediately taken to the presence, wherever Jesus Christ is, you're taken to the presence of of Jesus Christ immediately. Okay, so in, in verses 22 to 24, it goes on and says, But I live in the flesh, but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I would not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So what's Paul talking about here? He's talking about the fruit in motivating the saints. There is fruit in motivating the saints. So what Paul understood, he understood his life was to glorify Christ. And he desired to magnify Christ in his life or his death. And he also knew that there would be others who would benefit from his example. Paul struggled with his desire to be with Christ and his need to be present to encourage the saints. This is everything we just said on saying doesn't negate the fact that Paul had his desires as well, just like you and I do. He struggled with his desire to be with Christ he struggled with his knowledge that he needed to be present to encourage the saints. The word straight, 
um, means to be pressed on or constrained. So Paul was under pressure to know what to do, which is the case for any of us. We all, what do I do? I, do I, what, what should I do? So before we move on, let me just mention, it was not Paul's decision to live or to die. He's not saying in verse 21, I'm going to make a decision to live or to die. I want to, I want to be with Christ, so I'm going to die. No. Because what he's, what, what that would do, that would turn Paul into a suicidal maniac. Because in order for him to die and to get to heaven, he would have to kill himself. And so I don't believe that that's what Paul's talking about here. I don't believe that he's making the decision to live or to die. That decision is God's decision. So should Paul make his choice? No, he should not. So Paul is not making a decision. He's revealing an attitude. What attitude should you have? Of com- An attitude of commitment to being sold out for Christ. Whatever happened, he was content. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes this, now, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Now, I know a lot of times we look at that verse and because it's in chapter 4 and it's talking about giving and, and there's money involved and all of that and supporting another person and so on. We think about maybe he's just talking about that. And yes, but at the same time, he's learned that whatever state he's in to be content. Philippians 3.8, he says, Doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ. Some of you may be familiar with a missionary by the name of Adoram Judson. Adoram Judson was one of the first American missionaries sent out, and he was sent to Burma. Um, and he suffered constantly while he was in Burma. And in many ways, he experienced much of the same trials that Paul did. And he's quoted as saying this. This is, this is a quote from Adoram Judson. If I had not felt certain that every trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, meaning from God, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. That's where Paul is at. He says, if I, if I was not absolutely sure that my trial was ordered by the love of God, I couldn't have survived. Judson may have wanted to go on to glory, but he also said that not... So what, what Adoram Judson did was he said, God, I know I'm suffering. I don't like to suffer, but you help me get through this, and I will translate the Bible into Burmese. And he did. If you do this for me, God, I will I will plant a church that will train a hundred men before I die. And he did that too. And in verse 24 supplies the answer to the dilemma which turns out to be the uh, turns out to be uh to remain he Paul said I'm going to remain in the flesh as more profitable for the saints. So notice the offer that Paul is making here to the saints or that Christ has made to you either way. Paul's honesty about his preference is not overshadowed by how much he desires to help the saints. He is willing to invest in them regardless of the cost. He asks which is better to depart and be with Christ or to abide in the flesh, which is necessary physically and spiritually. His ministry, Paul's ministry to the saints, gave him the answer. He'll give you the answer, too, to the question of being with Christ or remaining in the flesh. Here's the question. For what your ministry does is carried about by you. What are you doing in your ministry? What are you trying to get accomplished? Paul realized it was better to be more needful for the people, the saints that are at the church, then he remained with them in the flesh, so nothing else mattered to him. And then we got verses 25 and 26, his confidence at their rejoicing. He goes on and he says, And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your for the furtherance of joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. So he's confident. And this confidence is all through this chapter. He was confident at their rejoicing. He's confident that the Lord had a work for him to do, which was met by the rejoicing of the saints. The word rejoicing in verse 26 sometimes can be translated as rejoicing or glory or boast or boasting or or refers to the boasting of the hope in which we find glory. And what Paul is saying, he's rejoicing. He's boasted. He boasted about the increase of the faith of the saints to glorify God in all that they did, being encouraged by his motivation. He said in Romans fifteen thirteen, 
Now the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And he wraps up the chapter in verses 27 to 30 about a conversation becoming the gospel. He says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the gospel, for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So let me just wrap this this chapter up here. In verse 27, the beginning of the verse, the word conversation, is that, that's a common word. We typically we typically think of that word as as our speech, right, our conversation, the words are coming out of our mouth. And, yeah, that's kind of how we can use it. But that's not specifically what it means. It means our conduct. Uh, our life speaks as well. Our testimony speaks as, as well. Now, just think about the church. Where is this church located? What do they what do they benefit from? So they followed Roman traditions and laws. They enjoyed all the benefits of a leading city in Macedonia. They were not taxed. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, I know people live in Florida, Texas, and a few other states, and they don't get taxed. But um, they didn't get taxed in Mas- in uh, Philippi. They were loyal to another location, Rome, and they conducted themselves according to another culture, Roman. So Paul is suggesting. The saints conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, which is another culture. Walk your talk, he's basically saying. In Colossians 1.10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Ephesians 4.1, therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. What kind of walk are you walking? Are you talking a talk that doesn't look like your walk, or are you walking doesn't look like you're talking, so on. So Paul is encouraging the saints here that as long as they live where they do, their habits should reflect heaven as it becomes the gospel. And the word becometh, it means to rise to the value, to to become worthy. So when he says in verse 27, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel, your conversation needs to rise to the gospel's level. And uh, there's a lot of Christians out there that they're, they have a lot of rising to do, unfortunately. I think the word deportment, I love this word deportment. I mention it every so often. It's a military term, deportment. Um, and it's a word that describes military behavior and it has to do with manners. Uh, you see this in the the sharpness of of the military's, um, I can't think of a good word, but imagine you go to the tomb of the unknown soldier, and those those um, guards, the snap to it, the counting so many steps, the way they turn, the way they inspect the weapons, the way they trans, transfer the, the, all of that is deportment, and it's such an awesome thing. Uh, I I like the word deportment because it describes a behavior that has to do with manners. Um, and so I think the word is uh, important. Saint, as saints, we need to conduct ourselves to draw attention, not to us, but to the gospel. Our behavior should draw attention to the gospel. Our, our behavior should draw attention to the gospel. And Paul called it standing in one spirit, one mind, for the faith of the gospel. And then he goes on and he says, uh, in verse 27, and the next part of it, it was mentioned earlier, but their only real weakness in this church was a unity issue. There was a, there was a problem of unity. And Paul says in Philippians 2, 2, which we'll get to next week, Fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Our church must be unified around the gospel through one love, one spirit, one purpose, which we know to be the furtherance of the gospel. But many of us are not willing to stand together because it... But it, we're not willing to stand together, but it was important... To Jesus said we stood together. Remember what he said in John chapter 17 when he was praying? He prayed for you. He says in verse 23, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, 
that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. That whole thing, Jesus Christ is saying, the world should see me in them and know that you loved me and I loved you and we loved them just because of their deportment. He said, uh, he goes on talking about striving together. We start by standing together, then we strive. And striving is not a bad word. Sometimes it can be used in a negative context. But it implies cooperation among like-minded saints. Chapter 4, verse 3, translates the word uh, striving as a laboring together so that we must be unified in the labor of the gospel. Think teamwork. We have to be on the same team. We have to be doing the same thing. Okay, Uh, then we wrap up in verse 28. Um, well, we're not completely done, but anyway, terrified by adversaries. And I think it's interesting that he brings this up again. He says, there's nothing terrified by your adversaries. Paul knows you're going to have adversaries. You know you're going to have adversaries. Don't let them cause fear in your life. And he references them, the word perdition. And it should cause us to think of the son of perdition, which is the opposer, the enemy, the destroyer. That's mentioned in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. So we will always face adversaries who are desired to oppose our unity, who desire to oppose our faith and our gospel, but we do not need to be terrified of them. And he wraps up in verses 29 and 30 with salvation and suffering. So salvation and suffering are grace gifts. That may sound strange, but we know that salvation is by grace alone. But you know, sometimes God allows us to suffer. That's his grace as well. Uh, we're just a lot slower to see suffering as Christ as God's gift to us. But, you know, in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Sometimes we have to suffer. Why? For our testimony, that it's blameless, that it can, that it can, that it can magnify the gospel, magnify Christ, magnify uh, salvation. So we're quick, we're, we're quick, we're quick to credit salvation to God's grace, but we're a lot slower to, to, for any other thing. And so let me just wrap up here. Paul points out their situation is the same as his, which is the same as Christ. And so we all understand that. Christ suffered. He went through great pains for all, for us. And sometimes we have to go through great pains for others. And so, um, we finish up this chapter. This is one of the tools, confidence. And so I want to encourage you to uh, read chapter 2. Uh, it'll probably take us three or four weeks to get chapter 2 as well. Uh, but there's just so much meat in Paul's writing. I just love his writing. And so we're going to end now. I'll pray and we'll be done. Thank you for hanging out with me um, in class. I know this is awkward for all of us um, to be in real life at six o'clock in the evening when we probably all should be eating dinner. Um, but that's okay. We'll do this for a few weeks. I don't know what, how long this will go. Um, but uh, be in prayer for our church. Be in prayer that we have a testimony that brings glory to God, brings manifestation of the gospel, magnifies Jesus Christ, furthers the gospel truth so that people can be saved no matter what happens in the world, no matter no matter who might have the coronavirus or a brain cancer, or any other illness that people may have. So let's pray. Uh, there are people in our class that we need to pray for as well. And there's things going on in the world that we need to pray for. So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the lesson in the last few verses of, of chapter 1. We just praise you for all that you teach us. We just ask now, Lord, that you would bless us as we dismiss. And uh, we just give you the honor and the praise and the glory. I want to pray for the Arnies. All that's going on in their life, I know um, things are um, always um, just kind of hanging out there, and sometimes we forget about them. But I want to pray for for Gwen. I want to pray for Bud Crust. I want to pray for for Joyce Slayhuber's uh, daughter Jill. I pray for the uh, Balkans and the things going on in their life. I just want to lift up the the Word First Bible Publishing Ministry, Lord, as we get ready to ramp up to make some Bibles for ministries. I'm going to pray, Lord, for the plans that we have to reestablish our church. And, Lord, we pray that you would get glory from it all. And we just thank you and praise you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, let me see if I can figure out in this thing. Anything? Hmm? Oh, sorry. Happy Mother's Day to all the people out there that have a mom. I always say that have a mom. Everybody has a mom. If you're a mom, happy Mother's Day. Love you guys. Good night.